Up next on Stack Overflow, Joel and Jeff try to avoid talking over each other while discussing data generation, full-text searching, cross-site scripting, Markdown, Microsoft Silverlight, and how to get a job at Fog Creek Software from IT Conversations. Hi, this is Phil Windley. Today I'm excited to bring you another great program from Stack Overflow with Joel Spolsky and Jeff Atwood here on IT Conversations. The Conversations Network is a 501c3 nonprofit, and we need your help. For a tax-deductible donation of as little as $5 per month, you can support this channel and the rest of the Conversations Network. So please visit conversationsnetwork.org to become a member and help us continue to bring our programs to the world for free. Our audio files are delivered by Limelight Networks, the high-performance content delivery network for digital media. And now, here's Stack Overflow. So, um, let's see. What are we going to talk about today? I have no agenda. I can open No agenda? No agenda. How many questions do we have? Oh, we have questions. Um, let's see. Uh, I got four. Okay. Okay. I'll try to make sure we have time for those. Some of them. We can do some of them. Yeah. So uh, let me start with some complaints about the previous show. Okay. So there were there were complaints that we were talking over each other quite a bit. Um, that is hard to not do. <laughs> not because we're both liking to talk, although that's probably true as well, um, but because there's always a little tiny bit of latency, and I find that anytime there's latency, it really aggravates the who's, ta- who's on first problem. Uh, so then it can be a challenge to figure out who's talking. So we will try to do a better job on that, because yeah. I did uh, take that to heart a little bit. The, the trouble with Skype is that it doesn't uh, multiplex, so if we both talk at the same time, it just sort of um, jar, jarbles, jumbles. You wind up not being able to hear either person. That is true. You can kind of hear the other person, but it, their volume level goes way, way down. Um, so it, it, you have to really strain to hear them. So I, 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 I empathize. That's not a good thing to do, so we're going to try not to do it. Um, so w- one thing I'd like to talk about today is a little bit of database stuff. Now, Joel did provide me with a drop of the uh, discuss.joelonsoftware.com, the .NET forums. I like and, the way uh, you say drop as if this was something that I'm going to do on a regular basis. <laughs> well, we have, we have to do it again. Something. <laughs> yeah, the reason, the reason I needed this is on a lot of the previous projects I've worked on, uh, we did these postmortems. And... I've always felt like postmortems are sort of underutilized in, in software development where you everybody has a meeting because nobody likes to talk about the things that didn't work. Everybody wants to, particularly in corporate America, it's like everybody's a winner. Like there's never any failed projects. There's oh, you no must, you, you must live on the West Coast. <laughs> Actually, this was on the East Coast that I'm thinking of, but I, I've seen it all over where Yeah, and postmortems you know, just, I've been to, everybody just loves to whine and whinge and all I can remember is the bad things. <laughs> and it's well, usually like it the takes... last three weeks of bad things that they remember. They don't remember any of the good things from the beginning. Well, I think you have to have somebody driving it that's – you have to have a moderator big time for something like that. Somebody who's not biased, like maybe somebody who wasn't intimately involved in the project who can sort of keep things on track. But it's important because what I found is if you don't do the postmortems, you're not really addressing the systemic problems in your development, like the things that you, you know, for future projects that you could actually fix before you even start. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, And one of the big things that I've seen personally in the projects that I worked on was we never had good test data. So we always ended up just keying, developers would just randomly key in data, testers would just randomly key in data, and you just sort of hope that things worked. Mm -hmm. And then we'd deploy to production and we'd find that, wow, once you have a thousand records, you know, performance tanks or, you know, there's all these cases about nulls that we didn't look at. And, yeah, so having a really good test corpus, and there's really two schools of thought on this. One is data generation, where you just synthesize a whole bunch of fake data, um, sort of looks kind of random, but uh, that, that can be good. And it can have, like, Unicode in it and things like that that you would mm-hmm. not normally have to test. And then the other is to just get a giant body of data. So in this project, we actually had both options because we're using... Uh, we're using the Team Suite version of Visual Studio, which I got through some friends at Microsoft, and it's, it's a very expensive version of Visual Studio. It's like I think the license is like seven thousand dollars. It's a lot, 
but it includes part of it, one small fragment of it, is the database edition. And uh, one of the things, one of the many things it'll do is let you um, generate these uh, data generation plans, which it's kind of cool. It actually ends up being reverse regular expressions in a lot of cases. That's the really powerful generator. Because in a normal regular expression, you're matching, right? Like, oh, I want a number here, and I want a letter here. Yeah, and I that's, want, you know, yeah that's just how you use it, I guess. Yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. But it's kind of cool because I had – it's not necessarily a unique idea, but when we had this problem, I, I was thinking, wow, wouldn't it be cool if you entered a regular expression rather than matching those characters? It actually generated those characters. I was like, that would be perfect because you could generate almost anything using regular expressions, yeah, but, like a little then, mini language. But, 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 but you see the bug here, right? Well, no. What's the bug? Well, for your very – in order to generate the test data that's going to test your regular expressions, you're going to copy those regular expressions, and you're going to tell some app to generate a bunch of things that match all those regular expressions. And then you're going to well, get sure. nice, clean, perfectly conformance data that doesn't really test anything because, you know, it's not well, some of the weird cases. Some of the things you can do, like, for example, you can set a percentage of how many of the, the values will be null. So you could have, like, 50% null on one field and, you know, 0% null on another field. The other interesting thing is you can set a random number seed. Mm-hmm. So you're actually generating repeatably random data, which I know sounds weird, and it is a little weird, actually. Yeah. But you could actually write unit tests uh, based on your data generation plan that would say, oh, well, I know this record is always going to exist because that's the random number seed we used. So you can actually unit test your database in some form with these data generation plans. You can also write custom code. You can also, um, for example, generate from another table. Like, say you're generating names of cities. Well, I'm not going to write a regular expression, although you could. It would be weird. That had, like, 50 cities in it. You're going to have a table of 50 cities, right? And you want the generator to pick at random one of those cities, like Cleveland, you know, and Des Moines, places like that. How about Cincinnati? And, uh, Cincinnati, perhaps, yes. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> uh, so it's really pretty flexible. Um, I really like it because I found very little, very few, very little tooling around this the last time I looked, which admittedly was a while ago. This was like 2005. Um, but it's really essential to test with like pretty large corpus of data. Mm-hmm. Yep. Um, there's and, a, and it, there's a new product also. If you don't want to use the team system, there uh, our friends at Redgate have a product called SQL Data Generator. Um, it's you know two hundred dollars or two ninety nine two ninety five, um, right? And it just generates some realistic test data, and it does things like actually generate real cities in the city column that actually mm-hmm. exist, and then right. when it generates those, it'll get the state right instead of getting the state wrong, or putting states into German cities and stuff like you know it it, it uh, generates pretty realistic looking data. I'm not really sure what all the features are. Cool. Well, that's one of the problems that, that Microsoft has, I think. It's that, one, this particular tool ends up being really expensive and hard to license because yeah. you can get it outside the team suite, but then it's you know, you're know you floating out there with this unusual add-in for Visual Studio. I don't, I don't really get what team suite – I mean, my feeling is that Microsoft just noticed uh, companies like IBM with their uh, rational suite charging somebody, I don't know who, you know, $6,000, $7,000 a desktop – for pretty much nothing, <laughs> or well, wait, not nothing. Sorry, an IDE and some features for the IDE and some hard-to-use bug tracking and a whole bunch of other stuff. And, and Microsoft said, "Hey, why can't we get in on this seven thousand dollars a seat market?" But it is a very, very niche market. So except for the people that are, you know, the partners that get it for free and and so forth, uh, I think it, we're really talking about, you know. A few hundred institutions around the world that are really going to use these gigantic packages. Yeah, it's frustrating because this data problem I view as you know core mainstream software development. So I, I want this tool to be in the hands of as many people as possible, and the licensing and just the understanding of how to even get it gets in the way, um, which is why you know companies like Redgate I, I think yeah. have a great niche because one their product is only two hundred dollars. You know you can understand how to get it. <laughs> Like you just download it, right? Yeah. I'm sure, I assume there's like an eval version that people mm-hmm. can get. Um, yeah. And, and when I was working with, mostly we're using it because we have it. Right? Yeah, I for mean, sure. It's in our default tool set. And it actually works pretty well. I'm sure the Redgate tool is better because another advantage that these vendors have is, you know, that's their entire lifeblood is this product. Whereas for Microsoft, this is just a checkbox on a feature list. I'm sure the team that works on this is very, you know, uh, gung-ho about the feature, no, but, but it's not the entire get, company. Exactly. They can't get any attention from anybody above them. And, and, and nobody's going to think of, 
you know, nobody's even going to know that they necessarily have this feature. You yeah, know, it's, it's a gonna... challenge. It's well, a challenge. I, I don't really know what the answer is, but my, my point to all this is, yeah. you know, please look at data generators. <laughs> yeah. uh, they're a really great tool to have in your tool set. And I, I found many shops had no idea what I was talking about when I went to talk to them about data generation and what it did. But I, it was always one of my favorite things to demonstrate because uh, I, I felt it was a big quality of life improvement for mainstream development. I mean, because who doesn't write an app that talks to a database at this point? I mean, it's, You still get even, the weirdest bugs, even when you have data generation. Well, but yeah, sure. This is like unit tests. I mean, you're just climbing the mountain of uh, mm-hmm. you know quality, and it you know it takes a long way to get to the top. This is we're just talking about we're down at the base camp now. <laughs> uh, so a- another way, if we don't have data generation, you gave me a, a drop of the database. So right. if you have an actual corpus, that works really well. I was surprised to see that you only posted three times in your own forums. That surprised me. Um, oops. Yeah, <laughs> that's not total in my own forums. That's just that particular .NET questions forum. That's true. That's fair. And but I, I was all—I was giving you a special like ID and, and looking up your identity and everything. I was like, oh, I did all that work for three records. I was like, right. <laughs> yeah, there's like fourteen thousand records, so it's a really, really good size uh, uh, corpus. So that's good. I don't, us I don't necessarily think we should launch with it, though. I mean, we've been talking about launching with it, and I have this fear that that will give us a ridiculously strong .NET flavor on day one, mm-hmm. which may drive away people in any other technology. Mm-hmm. We might be better off actually launching empty to the beta testers. Okay, I'm open to that. I mean, I, I, right now for development, I just want a large corpus so I can be confident we're not making any for sure error in the database and so forth. Yeah, yeah. Um, hey, uh, the other speaking of postmortems, uh, you had emailed me about uh, that you're in charge of the search uh, programming the search feature. Oh, good. I'm glad you brought that up. Yeah, I want to talk about that. Um, yeah, definitely Lucene.net. We have been trying to make SQL Server full-text search work for the last eight years with very little success. <laughs> so, and I can, you know I, we're going yeah. to get emails from people that work on the SQL Server team now. You know that, right? Yeah, and you know what they're going to say? They're going to say, hey, I'd be glad to listen to whatever problems you've been having and help you solve them. And I'm the program manager for the next version, and I want to make this better. We're like, yeah, right. okay, go read the 800 posts that I put on your friggin' forum in 2001 that you haven't answered yet. <laughs> Just because uh, I, I do get actually quite a bit of that from from uh, from Microsoft when I complain about anything. I complained about the about MSDN on the web being not webby and the URLs changing all the time, and got another email from somebody who claims to be the program manager, and they're revamping the whole thing, and it's going to be completely different. And what do I want to see change? And I'm like, no, not revamp. That's the whole problem. You guys keep revamping the whole thing, right? Well, can can I drill down a little bit? I mean, yeah, so in 2005, yeah. okay. what, what is uh, – my expectation was in 2005 that full text would be pretty good. Why? Yeah, it's not. Why isn't it? Uh, don't know. Well, first of all, um, <laughs> yeah. Don't know? Okay, great. <laughs> uh, the, I'll, I'll tell you the two biggest problems that we've always had with it. One is that it is grafted on using the standalone Microsoft Index server. It is not – very native to SQL Server. Mm-hmm. And in mm-hmm. particular, what that means is, uh, for example, that the uh, instead of being a part of the database that gets backed up with a database and treated as a part of the database and that gets detached when you detach the beta- database and attached when you attach the database, instead of being just like a real part of the database, it's actually its own thing over there in index server land. And, there, and it has its own unique identifying numbers that don't match the SQL Server unique identifying numbers and they just put a million records in the registry to map these things to connect them. And those mapping, yeah. That sounds insane, what you described. Um, Okay. (laughs) So so you'll see. Now, we had a a specific, one of the reasons why this turned out to be extremely, now, for somebody that just has one database and they're just sort of plinking around, they may not mind the situation. But uh, we host hundreds or thousands of databases on our servers, and this just doesn't survive. Uh, you know, having the the index server being separate from the uh, from uh, from the database itself. Right. So the index is like its own thing that's not a part of the database. When you update a record, it doesn't know that it's supposed to update the index. Instead, the index has to come along and spider it or something later. And um, uh, in particular, the, the problem that we found was that. A lot of times uh, we would detach databases that weren't in use and we try to reattach them later and that would cause the index server to confuse something and basically full text search would then be all messed up for the next three weeks. And uh, we finally learned a fairly complicated and tedious procedure that involved 
destroying all the full text indexes and then detaching the database and then later reattaching it and recreating the full text indexes, which was the only way to solve this particular problem. And uh, to be to be completely fair, between SQL Server 2000 and 2005, this got about 50% better, but it was never really completely solved. Is that right, Michael? It's kind of working now, Michael says. That's well, you know what you guys do. scene. Michael well, says well, you know what you, many problems with 2005. Yeah. The second... Well, you, you know, you, well, you know what you guys need, though. 2008. That's what you need. Woohoo! 2008, except it's... I do. Are they going to ship in 2008, do you think? Uh, yeah. I heard uh, uh, after the summer. So yeah, this, this year, but not real soon. Because I was asking, because I was wondering if we should use it on uh, Stack Overflow, but the feedback I got was definitely no. It's not that ready yet. Um, the second problem we have with it is it's just slow. It's just mm-hmm. a perform like a lot of times a query will just take 15 seconds, 30 seconds for the first query. And sometimes it'll speed up later for the next query after everything gets all paged in. But uh, it, it is just slow. And we, when we switched to Lucene and Fogbugs, our search became usable. There's just people have an expectation of search in terms of finding things and being usable uh, that they've learned from Google. And uh, unfortunately, Microsoft Index Server is just not anything like Google quality search. It's sort of like 1993 electronic database search. If you went down to the library in school and you were doing a paper on psychology and you needed to find something in some corpus and you ran some kind of search and it, you know, thought for a while and gave you back a bunch of wrong results based on, you know, the, the highest result would be the page that mentions that word the most times in the document. Mm-hmm. And it's just one of those things where it doesn't seem to be finding anything. It seems to be a lot of times it would find things that or the word that you're searching for is just not in there. And you can't figure out why it's bringing this back as a result. And you suddenly realize that, you know, it's conjugating something in some funny way that's causing a match that is incorrect because it's trying to do stemming or I don't know. It's just old fashioned search. It's just like before Google search and people's standards have risen and they expect to be able to find things. And, uh, and, um, you know, People, we, we discovered when we were using SQL Server built-in full-text search that people just didn't expect search to work in Fogbugs and weren't using the feature. They were they were going to great extents to try to find things using the filters, um, and um, and then just scanning. And uh, once we switched over, it's like hey, you, the search box works. You can type things in there and actually find results. Well, you guys must have a pretty big set of databases now because of all the hosting you're doing. Because when did you guys start doing hosted uh, Fogbugs? When did we start doing hosted Fogbugs? Maybe 10 months ago, I'm guessing. I'm not remembering. So it wasn't that long ago. So you guys are becoming like a little data center. So you're starting to have like real major size problems that not not I wouldn't necessarily have, but I can totally empathize with. We have an unusual problem in that we want to give every customer, every hosted customer, their own database. Right. So um, uh, in particular, that means... uh, uh, yeah, and in particular, that means having literally thousands of databases on our servers, which SQL Server was never really intended for. And actually, uh, SQL Server 2000 was just just ghastly if you had if you tried to attach more than about a thousand databases. Right. Uh, it literally just you know things fell apart. It, so, suddenly, basic operations would take uh, you know ten minutes. Um, things like you know sp underscore help db to get a list of your databases. Mm-hmm. Uh, SQL Server 2005, to their credit, and, and, and I didn't really blame this on Microsoft. I sort of felt like what we were doing was unusual and that to design a SQL Server thing to have that many attached databases is a very different project than to design a, a SQL Server that, to have a normal number of right. attached databases. But the, the thing about Fogbugs is a lot of these customers use their databases kind of rarely. Like, you know, they might go in there two or three times a day. It's not a hell, hell of a lot of transaction processing. And so in terms of CPU and disk storage and all kind of stuff, you know, we can easily put, you know, hundreds and hundreds or even, like I said, thousands of these databases on a single machine. And it's fine. Uh, except for the fact that just some things weren't scaling in SQL Server 2000. Uh, and, you know, years ago, we switched to 2005 and completely solved these problems. Right. This brings up an interesting, well, I think two interesting points. Um, one is one of my favorite bloggers, uh, Reginald Braithwaite, has a great post on how people who work in corporations are starting to compare your app with what they use on the web, right? Because mm-hmm. now, you know, in most corporate situations, everything's locked down. You can't exactly install applications. But there's these, this emerging class of, of web applications that everybody can get to right next to your app. Mm-hmm. And Google is one of those things, right? So you're right. So when somebody searches in Google, they see it return instantly. <laughs> they yeah. see it return highly relevant information. Yep. And they also see that they can just type stuff in. It doesn't, you know, 
your apps usually compare very unfavorably. And it's almost like an unfair comparison because, I mean, think of all the work Google has put into this massive server farm, you know, and your dinky app. <laughs> is it really even fair to compare them? On, on one level, no, but on another level, uh, yes. That's no choice. Uh, yeah, so it's a real challenge. I think every app is kind of competing with the web now, and there are certain things that it does uh, uh, very, very well. And then the other point is that your use case is different than my use case. That doesn't make either of us wrong, and certainly I totally respect where you're coming from with, with the yeah. things you're doing with log bugs. Uh, but I'm only ever going to have one database ever, right? Yeah. Stack over. Yeah, okay, that's true. That, that problem is not going to probably happen for you. On the other hand, uh, the the perform I think performance-wise and just in terms of the relevance of results, Oh, right. No, I'm totally going to look at Lucene based Go on your recommendation. Yeah. I, I was really surprised. I thought it would be better in 2005. But uh, no, no, I'm totally going to take your advice. But I just want to point out that a lot of times when people are discussing things, they don't talk about their implicit assumptions and their use cases, and they Absolutely. just end up talking. Not that we're doing this, but I see it a lot on like discussion <laughs> forums. and it's like Everybody has their pet use case, and that's the most important thing in the world to them, but they just don't get that other people are using it in like sometimes radically different ways. Um, which would change all the rules for, for what they're doing. Yeah, or they're, um, so, I mean, they're, they're imagining something completely different. They're imagining a different story. You know, they have, I think that's a, like, like a lot of political arguments where you're arguing, you know, should we allow, should there be a tax, R&D tax break for research and development? Well, you know, you can imagine the R&D tax break being, you know, a way for, for companies like Microsoft to just not pay their taxes because they, they spend so much on it and these are highly profitable companies and they should pay their fair share. Or you can imagine like little startups with two guys in a garage trying to save a few bucks. And it just depends on you know whether you're for or against that political statement or whatever. Often depends on what what story you're telling yourself as you're having the argument. And if two sides are just imagining a different story, they're gonna, you know, maybe come to different results as to what should be the policy. Right, but I, I wish more people would dig down to assumptions when they're talking about stuff. And you kind of touched on this a little bit in the five whys when you guys had that data center problem. It's like, why did this happen? Why did this? Happen? You keep asking why. I mean, there's a similar logic you want to apply to understanding use cases. Like, well, why is this important? You know, and just digging all the way down to your assumptions that you're the, the assumptions are there because you don't know they're there. Uh, you know, <laughs> that's why they're called assumptions. So <laughs> it's kind of nice to have somebody help you air those out and understand what assumptions you're making. So Lucene, you guys have had really just blanket great experience with Lucene. I mean, um, well, to be fair, we started out for some reason trying to use Clucene, which is the C port. Uh, <laughs> Nice. To remember why. Oh, I know why. Because we didn't want a dependency on .NET. We were trying to avoid a dependency on .NET. I see. Uh, for Fogbugs, which we eventually gave up on, and it was just, um, it was just like there was threading code in there. Let's put it that way. So it just it was not stable. Uh, and eventually gave up and switched to Lucene.net. And we've been really happy with it. I've been using. You know, what made me think of Lucene would be good enough is is this Lookout for Outlook thing, which I've talked about on my website. Which is a plugin uh, for Outlook written. Let's see when. Uh, help. Let's see if it has an about. Okay, I just hung it. You know how like Outlook uses again the Microsoft indexing service. It's never been fast. It's never been good. Uh, and these guys about let's see when it was 2003. So five years ago, um, basically one or two guys started a little company uh, to take the Lucene engine and make it available as a plug-in to Outlook so that you could use it to search your email. Mm -hmm. And it is astonishing how much better it is than any of the searches built into Outlook to, to this date. Um, they then got, uh, well, the main guy at that company, the company got quote-unquote bought by Microsoft. I don't know for how much money. And the main developer on Lookout uh, went to work for Microsoft, and everybody sort of thought that Lookout would then be incorporated into Outlook. Meanwhile, the Outlook team was you know, going in their own directions with search obviously to be better integrated with the operating system and the search service that Microsoft already had. And there, and Lookout is obviously open source, so this is not something that they can... Look, uh, sorry, Lucene is open source, so this is not something that Microsoft can really just use. And uh, so they continue to make Lookout available for a while. And then for some reason, when Outlook 2007 came out, they uh, uh, implemented a feature to check if Lookout was installed and uh, if it was to disable it. <laughs> And I think, I don't know if they were being just lunatics or if this was just incompetent, rampant incompetence, or if there was some genuine technical reason why they did this. Uh, but what they were telling people is, oh, you don't need Lookout anymore because uh, Outlook now has search built in. Mm -hmm. 
or better search. And it is better, but it's not as good as Lookout. It really isn't. It takes, uh, you know, minutes and it's just tedious. And it's just, just not as good. It just really is not as good. And so uh, uh, fortunately, the, uh, the Lookout programmer uh, has since left Microsoft and he has posted uh, instructions on his website for how to get the old version of Lookout from 2003 to work with Outlook 2007, which is what I use. And it's great and it's fast and it returns relevant results. And it's just really, really reliable. And so I always had real good experience with Lucene. And that's why I uh, was enthusiastic when the Fogbugs team uh, wanted to use it. So what have we learned, kids? We've learned that if you want to make change, you can't do it from within inside the company. Maybe, yeah. You, yeah. Have to be, you have to be outside the machine to make the change happen, which is really kind of depressing. But Because uh, that has implications for like the American gov- system of government and things <laughs> like that. Any large system, it seems like you can make change more effectively from the outside than the inside. It's a little depressing. This has happened in Google, too, like uh, Dodgeball. They've bought a bunch of stuff that mm-hmm. – well, not a bunch, but there's some, some really high-profile things that – all large companies buy that just seem to disappear. It's like you, like you said, that you buy them and you think, oh, this is going to be integrated and it's going to come with the product, it's going to be wonderful, and it just, you know, falls apart. It just gets absorbed into the machine and just dies. Yeah, uh, I was going to think of all the Yahoo acquisitions: um, Delicious, Flickr. Uh, what was the other uh, big Yahoo acquisition? Um, where you know, the founders are now gone. Yeah, and then you know another version. None of those things ever shipped another version. After they got acquired. Now, yeah, part of that, that kind maybe, of makes you wonder if there should be large companies. Maybe there should just be a whole lot of small companies. But you, you on a previous podcast, you said the large companies just it's a function of like money, I guess, or size, or I don't, I didn't really. <laughs> you weren't really listening. <laughs> no, 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 I, I was listening, but I just, I, I, it's hard to believe that that's why that happens. It doesn't seem very sane. <laughs> Large companies, uh, well, I don't remember what I said then, but I will point out that in large companies, you start to develop these local local maxima, as, as I call them. So local pockets where people maximize for the success of the pocket where they work, their team, their division, their P&L, you know, their profit and loss statement that they're responsible for, what their bonus is going to be based on. And people will optimize for that instead of for the good of the whole company by doing things that are just retarded to the, for the whole company. Or the opposite happens at Microsoft, and I think that's what happens with Lookout, is Microsoft has this uh, thing that they call the strategy tax, which is basically... Oh, right. That's what you had talked about before, the strategy tax. It's it's all the work that anybody has to do to support Microsoft's strategy of Windows everywhere and whatever Microsoft's strategy du jour is. And so the Internet Explorer team is told that they can put in some editing, but if it's as good as Word, then they're going to be threatening the Word monopoly, and therefore they have to stop making wed- edit- editing in a web browser be as good as Word. Yeah, yeah, it's too bad. It does happen a lot. So changing topics a little yep. bit. So one thing that came up uh, last week that I spent uh, at least a day and a half working on is, so in, in Stack Overflow, it, there's wiki-like aspects to Stack Overflow. Mm-hmm. So you can actually enter something known as Markdown Markup. Have you had a chance to look at the, any of the Markdown controls or anything? Is it the same? Are you using? Are you actually using Markdown there? I thought it was some. Slight- We're using. We're using Markdown. We're using a control called the WMD control, again, very unfortunately named. That's a great control. Markdown. Yeah, it uses Markdown. So one of the interesting things about Markdown that seems like a plus but quickly becomes a negative uh, as you start writing the code uh, is that it allows the spec, and not the control, I'm talking about the Markdown spec, allows you to mix HTML tags and Markdown tags. So the reason like Wikipedia and um, a lot of other sites that allow user input use a separate markup language is because it's so much easier to do it in a safe way. Mm-hmm. Because if you can allow arbitrary HTML be inserted into your database and then rendered to the page, this opens you up to this class of uh, cross-site scripting vulnerabilities. Uh, the abbreviation is XSS. And XS, cross-site scripting is really disturbing. And actually, I did some research on this in 2007, and since I wrote about it, Cross-site scripting is now the most common uh, security vulnerability in the world for software. <laughs> wow. So it's a really, really, yeah, it's a really, really big deal. So if you allow input from users to go into your database, oh, you dear. have to sanitize it. I know it sounds really I, simple. It's like, not oh, you just, you know. I just did it right now. I just did a cross-site scripting vulnerability in devstackoverflow.com. Yes. I, the uh, very second you might have. on click equals, and then I wrote some JavaScript, and it ran my JavaScript. Well, no, no, no. You have to submit it to the database. It, that actually won't go into the database. Oh, That's just okay. for rendering. Uh, but if you click save, and then the page renders that way, absolutely. So let, I want to be clear. So it's got to be written to the database. There's nothing I can do to prevent the preview from showing it, because the preview is... Yeah. 
So you strip it out. But um, it's, it's a lot more complicated than, than developers think. And uh, I talked about this on the blog, but there's this page of just – it's a hacker's page of, like, all the ways you can uh, type your HTML that are just, you know, obfuscated and weird and broken in a lot of ways. Yeah, but yeah, to yeah. Get your to get things cute. passed. It's really disturbing. I mean, I want everybody listening to this who's a software developer who does anything on the web, please – Go to that site and just scroll. It's got a huge... You'll scroll for like 10 minutes from all the exploits that have been typed in there. It's really disturbing. We basically really work on your eyes. Yeah. I mean, Fogwugs works on the assumption that everything is invalid except for those things that are valid. And so it's basically just going to discard everything until it finds something that it is absolutely confident is okay. Right. No, whitelist. You have to use a whitelist-based approach. And for some reason, a lot of developers, even today... Um, I, I posted a code snippet, so I have a snippet based on a whitelist because our use case is very narrow. I'm only supporting the tags that Markdown emits, really. So you have two options. You can either do it the Markdown way. Like, let me give an example. So italic is asterisk, word asterisk. That's italic in Markdown. That gets converted to, you know, I slash I or M slash M. Um, um, so you, you, but you can also enter the, the slash I, the I slash I, if you want to. Um, so I'm only supporting that subset of tabs. If, if, you're, if you're only supporting that subset of tabs, why don't you just store the markdown in the database? Well, we I are. Just, no, we're storing both. We're storing both because well, everything's editable. So I have to go back to the editable state, and I don't want to get into a situation where I have to convert from HTML to markdown. I don't know, I don't know if I even have code to do that, frankly. Okay, okay, wait, 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 wait. wait. Uh, there is, but, but wait. Why, why do you have to store both? Why can't you just – you can always run the markdown thing again in order to produce a page. Well, so there's, there's a problem because there's two there's two sets of code because we don't execute JavaScript on the server. The thing actually in, interpreting the Java, interpreting the Markdown and converting it to HTML is JavaScript at this point. So if I, and if I want to get a pure you know one to one in goes back to out conversion, I'd have to run JavaScript on the server. So I, I'd be using a .NET Markdown library. Yeah, there is Markdown a is library. Markdown is complicated enough that the, the not everybody does it the same way. There's these subtle differences in the implementation. Okay. So wait, what's wrong with uh, the dot Markdown library? There, there's nothing wrong with it, but my point is it's a totally different code path. So the input and output would be on two different code paths, oh. which makes me nervous. And no, I no, no, no wait, problem wait, 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 stop. <laughs> okay, why don't you do this? Give just accept input in Mark in Markdown. Don't accept any tags. Store the Markdown in the database. And when you need to display it, you either run through the JavaScript on the client in order to display it, and if they don't have JavaScript and they're looking at plain text, or you run through uh, a different code path, the, the markdown.net on the server, in order to, to send HTML back to the client. Well, I have one problem with that, which is I feel like that gives a really bad experience to people who, for whatever reason, don't have JavaScript running. They're not even going to get basic formatting of the Yeah, they're gonna, but gonna... that's the whole point about Markdown is it looks nice, is it looks completely legible. In its raw format. Oh, I suppose. Um, I don't know. I, I felt like we had plenty of database space. I mean, our server has like 300 gigs of space. Well, no, um, I'm not so concerned I, about that. I'm just wondering why have... Because you the way I'm describing it, you don't need any filtering. Well, you're doing the work on every single page, though. That's... I don't know. I kind of object to that a little. But it means for every single page we render, yeah, we'd have to go through and render Markdown again. Which seems you can render Markdown not... so fast that you do it on every key down on the page. You on run the, client, the entire sure. okay, but that's and that's JavaScript. So on the, first of all, on the server you can do it much faster because it's compiled code. But if you can do that on the client, why not continue to do that on the client? Just keep that JavaScript in there and use it to convert the Markdown to HTML on the client. Um, we could. I mean, it's something we thought about doing. But since I have both versions, I figured I have flexibility. I can just send down the pre-rendered version and not have to worry about differences in implementation. I mean, we, we have all the options. So the point you're bringing up, we could do that because I'm storing both representations, both it the completely, markdown. Well, I mean, it saves you from writing any code to, to, to sanity check HTML. Um, oh, I see what you're saying. Okay. Yeah, that's true, because if I'm never writing HTML in the database, um, but then I have to disallow, wait a minute, that's not true, though, because Markdown itself allows HTML. So you're saying strip out the HTML from the Markdown and just... Just change all the lessons to, less to ampersand, LT, semicolon. Um, it also gets a little squirrely because we can have code blocks inside the Markdown. Like, say you have Markdown, you're saying, oh, I'm having this problem in HTML, right? Yeah. You have a code block of actual HTML. It could be a cross-site scripting vulnerability. I mean, let's bring this full circle. You're like, wow, I found this cross-site scripting vulnerability. Let me paste it in and show it to you. 
right? Well, that's actually safe inside a code block. So if I strip out yeah. <laughs> blindly, I mean, I have to have logic to avoid the pre-blocks, the things that are actually supposed to render that way. The and, and pre-blocks don't, you don't just get a uh, ampersand LT semicolon in there? Um, I think that's probably sorry. what you have. It, the, the whole stack gets really confusing because you can actually, like I said, be pasting in script vulnerabilities that actually render safely. Yeah, um, yeah, I know. Because, well, all right, here's, here's, here's my point. Uh, in, in general, my design philosophy, which I have learned o- over many years, is uh, to try to keep the highest fidelity and most original document in the database and anything that can be generated from that, just, just regenerate it from that. Uh, every time I've tried to build some kind of content management system or anything that has to generate HTML or anything like that, or, or, or for example, um, uh, I, I try not to have any kind of encoding in a database because the database is just a, you know, should be the the the, the most fidelitous, fidelitous, highest fidelity representation of the original thingamajig. And if it needs to be encoded so that it can be safely put in a web page, then you run that encoding later rather than earlier. Because if you run it before you put the thing in the database, now you've got data that is tied to HTML. Does that make sense? So for example, if you just have a field that's just their name and you're storing it in the database, they could type HTML in the name field, right? They could put a less than in there. So the question is, what do you store in the database if they put a less than as their name, uh, it, it should probably just be a less than character. And, and it's, you know, somebody else's job, whoever tries to render an HTML page, it's their job to make sure that that HTML page is safe. And so they take that string and that's when you convert it to HTML. And the reason I say that is because if you try to convert the name to HTML by changing the less than into ampersand LT semicolon before you even put it in the database, if you ever need to generate any other format with that name other than HTML, for example, you need to dump it in HTML into a, an Excel file or convert it to Access or send it to a telephone using SMS or anything else you might have to do with that. Uh, or, or send them an email, for example, where you're putting their name on the two line and it's not HTML. Uh, in all those cases, you'd rather have the true name. You, wouldn't, you don't want to have to unconvert it from HTML. Right. No, I agree with that. And that's why we decided to store both representations so we have you know, all the options at that point. Um, yeah, it, it's it's really a lot more complicated than you think after actually <laughs> dealing with it. I mean, that's that's really what I learned from this is that you have to be, and that's why cross-site scripting is so dangerous because there's so many ways to get it wrong um, that are really kind of subtle. So I think that's the only the only lesson I have here, and I'm open to you know whatever rendering strategies we want to use. I, I just kind of like the elegance of not having to do anything Markdown related on the server. Um, yeah, my XX. XSS uh, routine I posted on refactormycode.com so people could look at it and make sure my whitelist-based approach was correct. And I got some really nice feedback on refactormycode, and I plugged a few holes, and as far as I can tell from the people looking at it, it's actually valid because it's really draconian because I only <laughs> I only allow very, very specific set of tags, and if you're not on that list, you're just, you're gone. Um, okay. You can either HTML encode it or actually delete it. So there's two schools of thought on that. So I, I feel pretty confident that the XSS... <laughs> You've grown attached to this code, even though you don't need it. <laughs> well, uh, no, I, 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 I just like not having to execute Markdown on the server. I think that's Yeah, no, really you don't nice, have to. Because then like I have I say, one code pass. Send, when you're sending the page to the, to the client, you send it with a bunch of Markdown and, some, and the same JavaScript that you use for interpreting that Markdown that, they, that you use on the post page. And it runs that JavaScript real quick if it can. And then they get their page converted to a bunch of HTML. But the control doesn't really arbitrarily render Markdown. It's not designed to do that. I mean, I could repurpose it. I only have oh, the opposite. That's 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 easy. Easy. There's all kinds of like JavaScript uh, uh, JavaScript versions of Markdown floating around. There's one. Uh, they probably just copied all the code from that. Uh, there's one that's like one of the top three hits for Markdown on Google. Where the heck is it? That uh, oh, Markdown. I don't know. I, I just philosophically, I don't like that the page is going to look. I mean, granted, Markdown doesn't look bad. Per se, but it's not going to look great. I mean, Here we go. I, don't know, I just think uh, it's attacklab.net slash showdown. Well, right, that's the control we're using. Attack Labs is the WMD oh. author. Oh, okay. Yeah. No, we'll, we'll look at it. I mean, this is the kind of stuff during the beta and stuff. I want to get really good feedback on this. Um, and our performance is really incredible now. I mean, we're returning in milliseconds. Um, granted, we're not doing everything we should be doing, but 
even already with the with the beta, we're astonishingly fast, which I'm I'm really a stickler about speed. <laughs> and it's actually appalling. Like a lot of sites I go to, like I've been doing a lot of searches because, for example, my SQL has gotten very rusty because I haven't used it in a while. So I was doing a lot of SQL related searches. Yeah. And a lot of the sites I would land on would take just forever to load. Just oh, at a very and then they would try to sign you up. Yeah, and, and just the, the layout is confusing. And, <laughs> and it's like experts exchange. Know. You have to scroll down past all the advertisements to get to the. <laughs> I'm in the situation now where I really wish Stack Overflow was up and running because I would literally take a lot of the stuff I'm looking up about SQL, just really simple things, frankly. Yeah. And I would post them as questions on Stack Overflow, and I would personally refer to them because it's going to be, to me, a better system. So one of the things I like about building Stack Overflow is even the, the partial version of it we have now, mm-hmm. I think is actually better than a lot of the sites that are out there. And it's so low friction to yeah. actually enter something on it. You know, you don't have to sign up. Um, there's not a lot of you know, extra stuff on the page you have to think about. There's pretty much just the question and the answer, a basic you know, Markdown editor. Um, and it's amazing what you can do in Markdown. Um, yeah. And also mixing in HTML as well. If you get confused, you're like, I don't understand Markdown. You can just type in the HTML and it'll work. Hey, where did that? Uh, that's an advantage. Where, where did that uh, syntax? I saw some kind of syntax coloring when you did code. Uh, it's in there. You just have to. So to make a code block in Markdown, you indent four spaces. You can click the toolbar button, which is Control K. Well, how does it know how to syntax? It was. It looked to me like it was doing syntax coloring, unless I'm dreaming. It is. Okay, so that comes. From, that's a project no from Google. Language. Some Google engineer, I think, wrote it. It's called Prettify. And yeah. it's a little interesting in that it actually infers all the syntax styling, which sounds like it couldn't possibly work. It sounds actually insane if you think about it. Um, but it actually kind of works. Now, he only supports it for – there are certain dialects that just don't really work well with it. But for all the dialects that sort of you'd find on Google – I think it comes from Google, Google Code. Mm-hmm. It's the actual co- it's the actual JavaScript on Google Code that highlights the code that comes back um, when you're hosting projects on Google Code, um, and you and you because uh, I think they use Subversion, so you can actually click. Through how do they know? How do they even know what language you're writing in, and therefore what a comment is? And I don't know. It's crazy. It's Prettify.js. So if anyone's interested in, in looking at this, um, just you know, do a, a web search for Prettify.js, and, and you'll find it. But I, I agree. I was okay, somebody. You somebody call somebody call in next week, please. With an, or somebody send us an MP3 with an explanation of what the heck this thing does, what languages it understands, why it works. I just typed in some random thing in a language I made up. <laughs> it actually syntax highlighted it reasonably well. Right. It's kind of amazing. It's pretty cool. It's, it's really neat. Um, so, yeah, no, if, if anyone has any other suggestions for syntax highlighting, uh, please let us know. Because traditionally what you do, like on uh, Wikipedia, for example, when you put a code block in, you do have to specify the language very explicitly. So it is unusual to have a highlighting engine that just sort of infers everything and most of the time actually does get it right. So it is kind of cool. So, yeah, no, I'm really excited about Stack Overflow. I mean, like I said, just doing the searches that I've been doing to build it, I, it's sort of a recursive thing where I wish I had it <laughs> so I could use it as my research notebook. And, and that's that's actually how I'm going to use it. So I figure even if nobody uses Stack Overflow, I'm going to use the crap out of it. So <laughs> Yeah, so will that's, I asked that's my logic. I asked a question yesterday and answered it myself. Yeah, yeah, there you go. Um, so I was going to talk a little bit about Steve Yagi, but I don't think we have time. Uh, uh, I'd rather get questions at this point. Yeah, that takes Steve. Everything Steve Yeggy takes a really long time. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so let's give up some questions here. Yeah, uh, let's try. Yeah, here's, here's one from Stephen Hill. Hi, Jeff and Joel. My name's Stephen. I'm from Blackpool in the UK. What do you think of Microsoft Silverlight? Do you think it will catch on, and will you be using it in the future? Thank you. Silverlight. Well, okay. First of all, we had some complaints that you were talking over the people asking the questions, so I just want to be clear about that. <laughs> yeah, I'm doing that on purpose, so there. Okay. I, the, the, the audience is not liking that. <laughs> <laughs> just the people and who also, emailed you don't like that. Well, yeah, it was more like comments, but yeah. And also, Stephen Hill, thank you. That was a very succinct question, and I love that. I just love quick, you know, here's my question. Awesome. I added, so, I added it like crazy. Did you? No, you didn't. Yeah. You want to hear the original? Did you really? Yeah. No, no, no. No, I don't. I did. I got it down well, yeah. 90 seconds to 11 seconds. He had actually eight questions in a row, and he was very kind and left big pauses between each of the questions and said, just go ahead and pick the ones you like. And that's what oh. I did. Okay. Yeah, if you can ask short questions, that'd be awesome. So, Joel, take it away. I don't know anything about Silverlight. Didn't you used to work for some kind of a Microsoft uh, yes. Solutions? I know something far more than anybody should know about Silverlight. So, okay. So, I have two, I'm of two minds on Silverlight. From a programming geek perspective, it's actually very impressive. So 
there's Silverlight 2.0, which is like the real version of Silverlight that's not quite out yet. It's still in beta. Uh, there's also Silverlight 1.0, which is JavaScript based, which is like the fake version of Silverlight um, that's kind of going to die off once 2.0 is out. So Microsoft already has this problem of they have these two sort of radically different versions of Silverlight that are named the same thing, which is annoying and very Microsofty. I guess they felt like they had to get something out there because you know. So we're really competing with Flash. Let's let's be clear on the messaging here. So Silverlight competes with Flash, period, right? It does more than Flash, though. And by that, I mean this is where the programming geek stuff comes in. It's another version of the .NET runtime that can act, and it's a really cool, um, uh, gosh, common language runtime that supports Ruby, Python, VB.NET, C Sharp, and I think even JavaScript. Wow. So you've got a really, like, hardcore like, you know, Anders-level language platform running in the browser now. And a lot of geeks saw that and were like, wow, this is awesome. And it is awesome, right? I mean, you could do real programming, not like this action script stuff, which is, you know, still to this day crazy. I mean, people build fantastic stuff in Flash, but it's not exactly a programmer's paradise. <laughs> now, uh, you know, if you're used to, like, C-sharp and, like, what I call real programming. Let's say... Not that... No yeah. Let me ask you a question. Let's say you were a uh, – you didn't care about any of this Flash competition or anything like that. You weren't even making Flash controls or anything. Uh, you just had a web page, like a nice .NET 2.0 thing with like markdown engines and stuff on your web page. And you've got large volumes of JavaScript code to run your site. Now, let's say Gmail, for example. Right? There's, just, there's just a lot of JavaScript there running everything. And it's, there's actually so much JavaScript there that the performance is sort of an issue, starting to be an issue. Uh, right. So my understanding is you could take this JavaScript, compile it into a Silverlight thingamajiggy without changing it even, and get this bytecode that would run really, really fast on uh, any kind of web browser that had Silverlight installed. And then for the people that don't have Silverlight installed, you just fall back to the old slow JavaScript. Well, not quite, because with Silverlight, you're writing to a different DOM. You're writing to the Silverlight display surface. You're not really writing. I mean, you can get to the browser. Ah, you can get to the browser stuff, but you know you have to go through com, and it's it's really you're you're paying a lot of performance penalties at that point. So in Silverlight, oh. it's like Flash in the, in that you have your own drawing surface that does primarily vector based stuff, um, and you can put you know user controls on it, and they're building this whole set of you know drop downs and radio buttons and stuff. But the use case of you know talking to the web browser uh, object model is not really what silverlight is about it's more like flash in that regard where you're actually writing to the silverlight surface and you can do like almost like 3d type stuff i mean you can do it's much more powerful than you know, your typical browser display elements but it's a totally it, the downside is as you pointed out it's it's kind of a separate world as well um, yeah so anyway that's that's architecturally what it is i, I am uh, it's excited active about silverlight controls. too what was that it's active x controls yeah, it is kind of like that. And it runs on the Mac, and it runs on Firefox. And, and Microsoft has done a very good job of with Silverlight of being open and saying, hey, we're going to run on all these different platforms. We're not going to discriminate. It's not a Windows-only type experience. Um, but on the whole, and I think you brought up one of these points, I think the problem that Silverlight's going to have is, like WebKit, for example, that team is working on uh, massively improving JavaScript performance. They have some technique, and I don't, I'd have to look it up, but it's... Some sort of hybrid, not compilation, but really fast interpretation they're doing. And they're getting some amazing results on benchmarks now, mm-hmm. like much faster. Like Firefox 3 was very fast with JavaScript. This is, I think, faster still by like 2x. Wow. Um, so the, really the competition for Silverlight is that you can still do vector stuff aside. With vectors, there's a huge weakness. But talking to the browser and like say doing a markdown control like we have, mm-hmm. um, if you had really fast JavaScript... Why not just do it in JavaScript? I mean, people understand the browser DOM, you know, divs and CSS and stuff. Mm. Um, so outside of vector-based stuff, I don't see it may not have enough compelling strengths in the face of really fast JavaScript interpreters that are starting to emerge. I think um, um, I think that's the real risk. Yeah, I, I think the truth is I've never seen an application. There have been a lot of programming environments that are basically the idea being that you get a rectangle inside a web page somewhere, and that yep. being desktopy inside that rectangle. Yeah, and that's what it is. It started with Java applets, and there was Flash uh, for a while. There was ActiveX, ActiveX controls, which had huge security problems, so forget that for a moment. But even if they didn't have silly security problems that they had, uh, just the fact that you're stuck in this little rectangle and you're navigating inside the rectangle and the back button button blows away the entire world that you were just in. And it was just like the, the unwebbiness of these desktop apps running in a rectangle on a web page. Uh, right. 
you know, they, they were useful for like little controls. So you might use it like the WMD thing that you have, like where it's a little uh, uh, WYSIWYG editing box, mm-hmm. effectively. Uh, and, you know, it's ba- basically being a control on a form. Uh, you know, then it's a decent control development environment. But the idea that you're going to build a whole app on this, and people have built like entire Flash apps uh, where the whole app is Flash. But, you know, they're, they're, always, they're always sort of upsetting in some ways. You can't select text and cut and paste it. You can't bookmark things that are inside there because they're not real web pages with real URLs. Uh, a lot of times, have you ever gotten any URL sent to you by a secretary or something saying, oh, go look at this? And you're like, I don't get it. It's the top level web page of some furniture distributor. <laughs> and you go there. And then you realize it's a gigantic flash thing, and they spent six months, and they navigated to something interesting inside this gigantic flash control. And then they wanted to send you a link to that, and they did what they learned how to do, which is just send you what was on the address bar, which hasn't changed for the last 25 minutes while they were browsing around in this gigantic Java, uh, sorry, uh, flash-based you know, universe unto itself. So I think that, the, the, the honestly, I really do feel like many, many times the lesson has been learned that when you try to build things on the web that aren't webby because they try to have their oh, own right. tangle, you're going against yes. the grain of the web in a way that makes it extremely, extremely unlikely that people will go for it, that it will take off. Right. No, I, I completely agree with everything you said um, because Flash still has this problem. I, I tell people that are really excited about Silverlight, I'm like, yes, from a geeky perspective, it is absolutely cool. You've got this really kick-butt runtime. You can write Ruby code. Right, that runs super fast in the browser, which is incredible. It's like that's really cool, um, but you're still playing in that little rectangle, right? You still look. How much adoption has Flash really gotten? And Flash has been out for what ten years, a long time. Mm-hmm. How many websites do you go to that are built entirely in Flash? And how many people rightfully complain about those apps? Mm-hmm. Right? It's not like this is not a solved problem. I mean, you're gonna have all the same problems that Flash has, just different flavors of that. Mm-hmm. So you're you're not embracing the web, Whereas and and you don't have the ubiquity. At least Flash is ubiquitous, except for the iPhone. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and even on Microsoft's site, they they have they have silver lighted up some areas of their site, and I've considered very inappropriate ways that makes them actually worse and more painful to use. Like I think Microsoft Downloads does this now, and the download site is just painful to look at because the the font rendering is wonky. Because the operating system's font rendering is actually outstanding. I mean, this is like how many years of computer science they've spent on this. Mm-hmm. Whereas in Silverlight, it's like, okay, we have our own font rendering engine. Really? It's not as good. Oh, yeah, it looks really bad. I'm really sensitive. To, I'm kind of a wonk when it comes to how fonts render. It's really kind of annoying, I'm actually. surprised that they don't um, let the operating system render the fonts. Well, there's something about the way they're doing it that's wrong, that's really wrong, that to my eye was like, wow, that looks really, really bad. It was really obvious. And Flash does this, too. The way Flash renders fonts, bad, horrible. Well, they're like, there's using, this font uh, Yeah. Well, because they have, font to scalable. they have to be scalable. Yeah, in a way. yeah, but there's a font rendering technique called Cipher, which is really cool, where you you take a div or something, and you, you can dynamically replace it with Flash to use like whatever font you want. It sort of solves the web font problem, mm-hmm. but it has a fallback because it's a div with an, another font. But it doesn't really look right, because the fonts are rendered through Flash, not the browser. So I, I posted about this on my blog, and people were like, wow, that looks really bad. And I was like, wow, I didn't see it. But once they told me, I totally saw it, and then I couldn't unsee it, right? <laughs> I, I totally... <laughs> They ruined it for me. It's like, here's this cool thing. I'm like, oh, it's horrible. I'm like, oh, you're right. It's horrible. <laughs> so, I, I, yeah, I agree with okay. uh, all those criticisms. So, we officially poo-poo on Silverlight. Here's a question from Dave Roberts. Hi, Joel and Jeff. My name is Dave Roberts. I'm going to harken back to the discussions you had a while ago on the podcast about Jeff learning C. Joel, oh. <laughs> would you hire Jeff? If not, what? would you hire me? If not, would oh. you at least sign my book? Yeah, I, I can sign your book. Bring bring it bring it by the office. Uh, all right, David Roberts. I, I really don't want to go back to learning C. I mean, that's <laughs> really kind of a boring topic to me now. It's been discussed. I, I think you either have you either believe it or you don't. I, I don't believe there's any other. It's, it becomes religious at some level, and it's just unavoidable. And I think I think there's so many things you can learn that are helpful You're to you. You're a programmer. You don't know what's missing. Um, so. Uh, let me also state that Joel has already said that if I worked at Fog Creek, I would have been fired a long time ago because I'm not putting, I'm not keeping a list of all the things we're working on. Yeah. Uh, it, and not necessarily in fog bugs, but just I don't have a concrete list of the things we're supposed to be working on. My uh, management style is a little uh, scatterbrained. 
Um, but I feel like with the team I have, and maybe I can talk a little bit about the Yegi thing in a very brief sure. way. So one of the things that's exciting to me about the team I've formed for Stack Overflow is, one, it's not just me. One of the pieces of advice I got early on was, don't let it be just you. And I totally get that now, because when it's just you, it's it's hard to tell. There's nobody pushing you or pulling you in any particular direction. It's just wherever your ego takes you. And that's kind of a dangerous path <laughs> to be on when it's just you. I mean, I'm sure some people can pull it off, but... And I've written before about, you know, when you're programming, programming is really a social activity, in my opinion. I mean, for a long time, it's been, okay, you talk to the compiler. It's like, what do you need all these human beings for? It's like, well, you know, a human being wrote that compiler, right? And having, two, you know, another pair of eyes on your code is going to improve its quality by, like, more than double, in my opinion. So there's all these really concrete reasons uh, you would want someone to work with you. And the people that I've picked to work with me, I've been very fortunate in that these are people that I've worked with that I know they do great work because I've worked with them before. Like, I handpicked the people that I wanted to work with that, A, I like them very much on a personal level. We're very close friends. And two, technically, they're outstanding, right? And how do I know that? It's not because I looked at their resume or went through a vetting process or any of this stuff. It's like I have worked with them for extended periods of time. And I think this was Steve Yegi's point. Of course, it's a really long post. Steve wrote a post, uh, Done and Get Things Smart. And I, I honestly had a hard time figuring out where he was going with a lot of it. I mean, I, he, he's a great writer. I, I agree with all his points, but he has a tough time, like, summarizing in a way that I can understand of, like, what is the point of this essay? <laughs> <laughs> and my interpretation of that essay was probably the only way, maybe, one of the only ways to really figure out who's truly great is to work with them, right? And, and get the recommendations of who have you – like, he, he, he views it as, like, a state diagram of, like, Name the, the the best engineer you've ever worked with, right? And then just keep having people do that and then follow that chain all the way back until you have the one super engineer, right? <laughs> <laughs> uh, John Von Neumann or whoever it's ultimately going to be. But I, I do believe in that. Like, you know who's great because you've worked it's with a, them. Right? Oh, it's like a 14-year-old chicken, chicken yeah, named Jason. He's uh, lives in Idaho in, the base, in his parents' basement. He's got a little IBM XT set up there. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And he's the one for hacker from which he's the best engineer in the world. Um, but so in terms of, gosh, I don't know if I've even actually answered the question. It's like, who would you hire? That's really the question. No, right? I think so the that's, question that's is, I would I hire that. you? <laughs> if I'm not mistaken. <laughs> and I, I think effectively yes. I did, you know, because I had this project I wanted to do. And uh, I brought you on, even though you didn't know C. <laughs> uh, and, you know, we did it jointly. And, and you know, people bring a lot of different uh, um, skills and, 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 and values to, to different projects and different people are suitable for different things. And a lot about what I talk about specifically is, you know, how Fog Creek hires general purpose programmers. But uh, who, who can be a founder of a company is not the same as who can be an excellent general purpose programmer. Right. And I can also tie this back to, to my point, was that you and I had this conversation where, like, you know, we feel like we know each other, even though there's no reason. We I totally do not know each other, right? I mean, we spent really no time together. Mm-hmm. But through reading your writing and you reading my mm-hmm. writing, and we did meet that one time in Emeryville, so we've seen each other physically, had a little eye-to-eye action. <laughs> yeah, uh, but we felt like we knew each other, and there was some implied level of understanding. Um, and also, I think Joel is like me, and that he likes people that question him a little bit like you know obviously i was very critical of joel um but i like people that are somewhat critical of you and, and will view you objectively and not just say okay whatever you say man yeah. um so i really enjoy working with people that challenge me some and uh, also some of the feedback joel we've gotten on the podcast is like why do you guys have a podcast you're always you know you never agree with each other you're totally uh, fighting each other all the time and i don't see it that way Every- at all actually yeah i mean do you see it that way uh no yeah, I, I think this is normal back and forth you should have in any good working relationship. You should be questioning my assumptions. I should be questioning yours. And then we synthesize some understanding out of that. And we're not going to have a successful working relationship if we're not honest about what we think, if we try not to hurt the other person's feelings by saying it's okay for you not to know about pointers or whatever. <laughs> if we, you, know, you, can't, you can do that, and that's fine, but you can't have an engineering relationship. If you're not willing to call the other yeah. person out on their bullshit, uh, in 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 every case, you know, uh, you can't you can't do oh. science or engineering. You can, you know, it might work well for politics, maybe. Yeah, 
Yeah, so I, I was getting great mileage out of that at the WWDC party I went to because, you know, everything on the Mac pretty much is C, uh, Objective-C. There's not a whole lot of different programming options for desktop apps in, on the Mac that I could tell. So I was talking to a lot of people that actually did, you know, worked on core parts of the operating system. And they, and I asked them, I was like, oh, so what are you programming? And they would say C, and I would go, I'll go what, what, is, what is C? What is the C thing you're talking about? Is it like Java, like an early version of Java? <laughs> like, you know... You know, like that that band that uh, that guy was in before the you know after the Beatles, the Wings. Is that what you're referring to? <laughs> Paul McCartney and Wings. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Paul McCartney's Wings. He was in a band before Wings. I don't know what that is, right? Yeah. So I'm glad you're enjoying that joke because people really seem to enjoy it, and I just enjoyed playing off. It, it's. Just I wish I had a snippet of Band on the Run to play right now. <laughs> it is a great album. I will say that Band on the Run is is, is actually a very good album. Um, okay, so the second part of the question was, would I hire Dave Roberts? And um, so I, I happen to have taken the liberty of popping up his resume here. And let's see, so he has a 3.5 GPA, so he just made the just made the cut for that score. Uh, let's see, um, I've heard of some of these companies that he's worked at. Uh, he's always learning new technology to keep himself organized, so he's doing things in Python or Ruby on Rails. That, that's still a positive sign. Won't be for long. Did uh, three years of C plus plus? That's good. I would take that as a plus. I would probably say that uh, you would get a phone interview at Bob Creek. That's all. I'm... Did he actually? Did he actually enclose his resume yeah. as well? So yeah. Okay. So I'm going to have somebody That's call cool. him. Actually, I thought that might have been. Uh, uh, yeah, he would get a phone interview. Now, now um, we uh, that, that I should I should mention that maybe phone interviews screen out about fifty percent of all people. And then uh, of the people that come up to uh, New York to interview in person, maybe one in four, one in five, one in six get hired. And uh, of those, uh, we very rarely regret it. Uh, but the people that uh, – the other thing we have is uh, – and this goes to Steve Yegi's point – is that we really like hiring people through co-ops or interns uh, or internships where they come in work for us for a few months in the summer and uh, a lot of times there we find people that are um, that we really want and uh, and make them full time offers. Sometimes we find people there that uh, we really want and they don't want to work for us, and that's fair. And sometimes we find people that uh, uh, you know we really think would be to be to put it nicely, do better somewhere else. So um, right, hiring is yeah. tough. I mean, I think you have to have a thick skin. Is what Joel is saying. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, and and I, I empathize because you, you really do on both sides. The truth is, I, I hate to say this, but I mean, we're very, very selective in our hiring. Google is selective in our hiring, and I do recommend that people be selective in their hiring. On the other hand, I know that a lot of people that don't make the bar at Fog Creek, uh, just because, like, I, I, I honestly, given what, what I've heard from our developers goes on in our programming interviews these days, I don't think I would pass. So, uh, um, it, it, on the other hand, a lot of people who don't make the Bard Fog Creek will go off somewhere and do something and be fantastically successful uh, somewhere else. Uh, and uh, you know, one of the things that's kind of important to remember is that for us, hiring somebody who we, you know, uh, what we would call a false positive, somebody that we think is going to turn out good and doesn't turn out good, is really, really costly, and it, it makes everybody unhappy. Uh, you know, they might move to New York. Uh, so it makes them unhappy. It makes us unhappy because we have to fire them, and it sucks. And uh, there's just sort of a lot of, and there's a lot of expense, and, and because we paid them for six months while they wrote bad code that then had to be rewritten, and uh, all that stuff adds up to a false positive is very, very costly. Whereas a false negative, if we tell somebody that uh, we don't think they can make it, but maybe they can, uh, what that costs us is you know whatever the interview cost us, you know two thousand dollars to fly them to New York and put them in a hotel and some time that we spent interviewing them. And so the truth is I'd rather err, and it's, it's, it's unfortunate, but I, I'd rather err on the side of safety at this point uh, and get people that I know can, you know, that have a much higher probability of being successful. And what that means specifically is that chances are that most of the people that we're turning away at the end of a day of interviews uh, would be great programmers somewhere else or here. Um, but we just right. don't want to take the risk. Yeah, no, I think that's uh, a fair point. And like I said, you have to have a thick skin. And I think of it more as like relationships, you know, like intimate relationships you would have another person. It's like there's a lot of reasons they can't work out, mm -hmm. right? And not all of them mean you're a bad person. No. <laughs> uh, there's just a lot of reasons that things None don't of them. click. I've had, and there's a lot, yeah. 
a lot of fish in the sea. A lot of fish in the sea is my point. With with jobs as well. So keep that in yeah. mind. We had, for example, we had an intern who was a marketing intern, and uh, he was just not that good at uh, being a marketing intern. But that's because he didn't know anything about marketing. Uh, and we don't have a marketing department, so there was nobody to teach him. And he, he was just you know not figuring it out on his own. But if he went to some organization that had a big marketing department. Uh, where somebody could teach him how to do marketing, he would be extremely successful. You know, and that's really what I thought. And so, actually, we would not be doing him a favor by 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 hiring him at Fog Creek to do something where we can't give him the the conditions to make him successful. That's just that does nobody any favors. Sure. Well, we're a little over an hour, oh. so we should probably cut it off here. Any- any notes for the end of the show? Anything you want to Yeah. Say? Well, first of all, again, uh, once again, I want to thank all the people that are working on those transcripts up on the wiki. I see they're getting done. That's really awesome. Uh, secondly, uh, uh, we only got to two out of four, but uh, we'll, we'll get these other ones. Um, please do still uh, record MP3s and send them in to podcast at stackoverflow.com uh, uh, or uh, whatever uh, sound format, MP3, uh, WAVE. Um, or call uh, or look look for Blog Talk Radio if you don't have a way to record sounds. Uh, Wait, Joel, did you say did you say wave wave wav. file? Is that I said wav. 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 Thank have to you. Go back and okay, good, good, good. It doesn't have an e, so it's wav. Yes, of course, it's wav naturally, <laughs> obviously. Uh, what was I talking about? Please do send in questions or, or just uh, stimulating stimulating <laughs> things that you want us to talk about. The more provocative, the better. You know, like 10 seconds of real good provocation that's going to have me and Jeff at our throats is probably the best thing you could send in at this yes, point. That's true. And uh, I'll see you next week. Yeah, thanks, Bye. guys. You've been listening to Stack Overflow with Jeff Atwood and Joel Spolsky. The Conversations Network is a 501c3 nonprofit, and we need your help. For a tax-deductible donation of as little as $5 per month, you can support this channel and the rest of the Conversations Network. So please visit conversationsnetwork.org to become a member and help us continue to bring our programs to the world for free. Our audio files are delivered by Limelight Networks, the high-performance content delivery network for digital media. The post-production audio engineer for this program was Joel Spolsky. Our website editor was Jeff Atwood. The series producer is Joel Cherney. This is Phil Windley. I hope you'll join me next time for another great presentation from Stack Overflow here on IT Conversations.